This episode of the DGMG podcast, that's my podcast, is brought to you by Oribi, O-R-I-B-I, O-R-I-B-I, Oribi. Here's the cool thing about them advertising on this podcast, by the way, just a quick note, it's working. So a bunch of people actually went and used Oribi and signed up and started having success with the product. So they came back and they were like, Dave, can we keep sponsoring your podcast? And I said, yes, it's always great when it works out that way. And Oribi is awesome because they are providing an alternative, finally, an alternative to Google Analytics. And it's the alternative that a lot of people have been waiting for. I talked to a lot of marketers and Google Analytics is one of those things that you love it or hate it. And so if you're in that other camp or just looking for something new, you should go and check out Aribi. They have customers like Sony, Audi, Panasonic, and Pizza Hut. And it's great because once you connect Aribi to your website, you can really quickly analyze what's going on and see how people engage, not just with a form on your website, but with everything. CTAs, forms, pop-ups, images, videos, landing pages, and it works across all the domains that you have. And you can even see specifically what is leading to conversions. And marketing is ultimately just a game of let's go do more of what's working. So Aribi can help show you that. And the best part is it happens all automatically, right? You're busy, I'm busy. Using Aribi is like having a marketing analyst on your team working 24 hours a day that can give you what you need on demand. And whether you have a new campaign running, new ad creative, new landing page, there's so many things that we are testing and want to be measuring daily. And it's really easy to do that with Aribi, even if it's something like you just shipped a new pillar piece of content that the team has been working on for months and you want to know how that content is impacting conversion, you can do that. Just log into Aribi, you'll learn how people are interacting with all of your marketing and in no time you'll get better at prioritizing what's working and so you can throw out what's not and double down on the stuff that actually is having an impact. Plus, it's super simple to set up. They've got great customer service and tech support in case you need any help. And if you're like me, I'm sending a million questions in to customer support, but maybe that's just me. You can check them out at aribi.io. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O. And if you do aribi.io slash DGMG, and you sign up through that link, you'll get 20% off any plan or punch in the promo code DGMG. You'll get 20% off any plan oribi.io, O-R-I-B-I dot I-O. Check them out and say bye-bye to Google Analytics. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Lemon Pie. They're the ones who produce this show for me. They're awesome at what they do, and I can't recommend their work enough. They make it super easy for me, and I know that they can help you too if you want to launch a podcast strategy for your brand. Check them out at www.lemonpie.fm and tell them I sent you. That's www.lemonpie.fm. Tell them that I sent you. All right, let's get into this episode. What's up, everybody? On this episode, good one for you. My guest is Asia Orangio. Okay, so we just hopped right into this because that's what we do. I'm glad that we're talking, by the way, because, I, okay, I was like, what, I was like, what angle are we going to talk about today? And I love that your whole focus is like first 100 customers because a lot of people that I hear from, they're like, one of the most common things that I see come up is, how do I get my first customers? How do I get my first customers? And so if you're, if you're okay with it, maybe we could focus today on a little playbook for people for like, for any startups out there, how, how to, we'll focus on the first 100 customers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's where we're going to go. All right. So now we're teed up, but Maybe first, let's dive in and want to just introduce yourself quickly and give a background on who you are, what you do, and then that'll kind of set the stage for where we're going. Yeah, of course. Okay, so my name is Asia Arangio. I'm the CEO and founder of Demand Maven. We work with SaaS companies on helping them troubleshoot their growth, find their best growth opportunities, and define their go-to-market strategies. We work with both early stage and later stage, more mature SaaS companies, Pretty much my entire background is marketing and even more specifically marketing for software and SaaS companies. So I come from a demand gen background and also uh, a strategic background. Way back in the day, I, I, I consulted enterprise companies on personalization strategy and marketing strategy. And then I did like a complete 180 and focused exclusively on product <laughs> uh, because I, I um, at the time, we were doing these enterprise deals that were like one to $2 million and took like one to two years to close. And I was like, I want something way faster than that. And so I went to startup and never looked back. It is way more fun if you can actually get the feedback loop. Like I could see how that'd be frustrating. Like you do a bunch of work, wait, see, 
Then you go and do demand gen today, which is all digital. You can get all that feedback in real time. As somebody who came up through demand gen, what is demand gen to you? It's a term that a lot of people have a lot of <laughs> opinions and definitions on, but like, how do you define it? Okay, yeah. Uh, so lead gen versus demand gen, the ultimate debate. To me, demand gen is a practice. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a practice and a mindset that ultimately generates sales-ready leads. People who are either one step away from buying or literally ready to buy right now. Lead gen, there's so many schools of thought around what is the difference between lead gen versus demand gen. I kind of think about it like squares and rectangles. These are still <laughs> geographic shapes and they accomplish a lot of the same things, similar things. But I think lead gen, the implication isn't necessarily that these are sales ready people. However, they certainly could be. You could just be building an audience. But, you know, there's a lot of debate about the differences between the two. Ah, uh, okay. That was gold because, <laughs> okay, so for people, listen, Asia went through that super fast. But what she said is so important, and I'm going to repeat it because I want you to hear it again. She didn't say leads. She said demand gen is, is responsible for sales-ready leads, right? And so, like, that is the qualifier because at the end of the day, the sales team, at least the ones that I've worked with, Asia, I'm sure the same with you, like they don't care where the leads come from. They don't care if they're blue, Lego leads, yellow, purple, pink, tomato, doesn't matter. doesn't matter what the source. They want to know that they are sales ready. And the biggest way that sales and marketing don't get along is because when marketing delivers a bunch of what they call MQLs or they consider qualified leads are not, sales talks to them, they're clearly not ready to buy. That's a waste of everybody's time. And so I love how you like grounded that definition in call it whatever you want. But the difference is, this is about sales readiness. Are these people ready to buy now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of my previous roles were focused on how do we run programs? How do we implement marketing functions and practices that help generate those? And when you start with demand gen, you certainly, uh, it's how I cut my teeth for sure. But I also started learning much more about how to build more awareness level. So what do we do to build just more general awareness, whether or not someone is sales ready or not? And how do we think about building audiences? And as my own marketing experience, uh, as, as that grew, I, I became exposed to many more different ways of thinking and, and different ways of generating growth. Uh, but that's definitely where I started. It's a little quick background about me. We got to keep going on this topic. Okay. This we're already going in a, in a different direction, but awesome. let's let's keep going on this topic of sales readiness. So, like, that's the goal, right? For any startup, would be like really if you if you back all the way, like we want to first thing we want to do is generate sales ready leads for the sales team. How do you do that, and where do they come from, right? Because I get I see a lot of, you know, I've seen Chris Walker talk about this on LinkedIn, for, for example, which is like. The best sources of leads are inbound demo requests. Well, no kidding. <laughs> like, yeah. however, I think I don't know that a lot of marketing teams today like have a playbook for how do you repeatedly get more inbound demo requests then? So like in this case, how do you go and get more sales ready leads? Okay. Let's define sales ready. It's it's gonna be, you know, there's MQL and SQL and a whole bunch of other acronyms and really clever ways of pulling together like how we define what sales readiness looks like. But to me, it, it actually is much more tied to the psychological stage of a buyer. So I like to use the five levels or five stages of awareness. So uh, just as a quick refresher, this was, if I'm not mistaken, developed by Eugene Schwartz. I could be wrong here. But there's unaware people who are totally unaware of the problem or the pain. There are people who are problem aware. They have identified that they have an issue or a pain. Then they move over into I am now solution aware. I am starting to look for solutions. I am in the process of looking for either products or other alternatives. And then finally, there's product aware. I am now aware of your product specifically. And then finally, most aware, they've probably booked a demo at this point, or maybe they've signed up for the free trial or the freemium. So when I think about sales readiness, I'm thinking about people who know that they have a problem and want to find a solution. And there's no amount of money that you can throw at people to force them to make that mental and psychological shift. It's got to be something that you can certainly help people along that journey of, hey, here's 
solutions that you can consider. And by the way, here's our product and kind of moving them along that process. But people who are sales ready, they have to have experience with the pain and they have to actually want to solve it. It's got to be painful enough for them to want to solve it. And we're talking mostly about problem solving. There's definitely the opposite side of the spectrum, which is selling vitamins. So there's like a lot of, you know, are you selling a painkiller? Are you selling a vitamin? With a vitamin, the mindset shift is really more about selling a better version of that person, selling a better version of themselves. However, I find with most SaaS products, most of us are kind of in the painkiller space or we're trying to be in the painkiller space. So we are solving a pain, solving a problem, and it is painful enough that people actually want to solve it. They actually want to find something to fix it. That to me is the perfect pool of sales readiness. Those are people who, yes, I'm aware I've got the pain and now I'm just looking for the absolute best solution. Now it's our jobs as marketers to, I don't want to say convince them that we're the absolute best solution, but that we are the right solution for a really specific kind of audience or a really specific kind of buyer. The ROI on the first seven minutes of this podcast is is off the charts. <laughs> you dropped the Eugene Schwartz stages of awareness and painkiller versus vitamin. I hope people are like swerving to pull over to take notes. But uh, okay, so so on that, just a funny story, and I grabbed this while you were while you were really going there, which is like. My friend Ryan Dice sent me this book. And to your point about stages of awareness, he said, DG, you can't call yourself... This is the note he wrote to me in the book. You can't call yourself a marketer and not have this book in your library. Stages of awareness, chapter two, and states of sophistication, chapter three, will get anyone 80% of the way to master level copywriter. Enjoy, Ryan. Wow. So anyway, I love that because... What you laid out, and I'm kind of like drawing along with this, is like, I actually love that. That could be the foundation for any business, right? Which is like... Start with the five stages of awareness because if people don't know you, they don't know the problem, that almost then dictates the marketing playbook that you need to go and do, right? Okay, so this is a well-known problem, but they don't know you're the solution. Okay, so that's going to narrow down the tools and the tactics and, and the channels. And so like, it was cool to hear you go there first because I could see how you might go help a startup by very first mapping out like the stages of awareness. And and. We, we've been going for 10 minutes now. Asia hasn't mentioned once uh, Google ads, Facebook, retard. Like we're, we're not even talking channels, <laughs> channels yeah. and tactics, right? But this is like the framework on, on which you have to build. And then you can go and map some of those channels. I love where you're going with that with basically like mapping marketing channels to, to the stages of awareness. And that kind of dictates what you need to go and do. Absolutely. This is definitely putting marketing in, in too small of a box, probably. But to me, marketing is a psychology game. This is a, do you really understand the mindset of the audience that you're trying to attract? And do you know where they're at in their journey? And what would it take, best case scenario, for us, you know, if I'm, if I'm thinking of as a, a, us as a marketing team, what would it take for us to produce or provide them to help them along their journey and to help them make the absolute best possible decision for who they are, where they're at, etc. But yeah, it's totally a mindset and a psychology game. It's also a relationship game as well, building rapport, all of the other, you know, really awesome feelings about that. But yeah, when I think about demand gen, like that's how do we find people who are problem aware, solution aware, and need to find us. And do you think like to your point about about lead gen, does does demand gen also have to grow kind of like the other piece of that, which is like lead gen, right? Because you still want there might only be 100 people ready to buy now, but there might be a universe of 10,000 people who are, in the, who are in the world that you want to go and talk to at some point. Like, do, Are you f- consciously focusing on marketing to that audience as well? Absolutely. I mentioned earlier, demand gen is a practice. This is going to be a terrible analogy, but I'm going to make it anyway until I find a better one. I kind of think about it as like, if demand gen is a practice, as if it were like a medical practice, you know, we, we do heart surgery here. If that's all we do, then we can only provide help to people who need an immediate need. But what if we also offered um, nutrition services or physical therapy services or you know all kinds of different other practices? Now we can serve um, an audience who, whenever they're ready for <laughs> our heart surgery, maybe they'll you know keep us in mind. But I, I kind of think about it as the lead gen is really that awareness building. It's the audience building. Of course, people can jump into sales readiness at any point, depending on where they're at. But it's just one of many practices. And demand gen wants its cousin, like lead gen is its cousin. And it wants like they want to see each other at the at the family reunion. 
That's the way I see it. And you really like, yes, you can certainly start with one. But the truth is that marketing is going to evolve over time. Growth is going to evolve over time as, as the company itself grows. You are going to introduce new practices and evolve others over time anyway. So to me, it's not like an either or. It's a yes, both. And then just a matter of when, honestly. Love it. I think it's a great analogy, actually. They're related. Or, or like, if you have better nutrition, you're going to have a healthier heart. They're connected. Yeah, of course. This is why like, I, I like to talk about brand and demand together, which is like, if you have a stronger brand, like, do, do you think demand gen is easier at Zoom or the rinky-dink startup you've never heard of that's doing web conferencing? Like, of course, it's going to be Zoom. And so you want to have that on, on your side. Yeah, of course. How do you like to see, like in the companies that you work with, how do you like to see the marketing team structure with demand gen? Because I, well, one problem that I've seen a couple times over now is because of all the things that you just talked about, Demand gen feels like the one team in marketing that has all of the weight on them, all of the pressure on them. And you kind of have contents over there just making some stuff and events are over there just doing some stuff. Like in what role does demand gen have to work so that doesn't happen? Yeah, I think this very much goes to how executive leadership runs the team and also how executive leadership incentivizes certain teams, especially when we think about you know the traditional marketing versus sales storyline. But I do ultimately believe that a lot of that culture setting has to do, and also value setting has to do with how leadership builds and runs the marketing department as a whole, and then also C-suite as well. I'll, I'll take a step back. I definitely remember from back from my demand gen days feeling like I was carrying, not that I was carrying all the weight, like literally, but that it was all on me, so to speak, to perform. Mm. And at the end of the day, I do think from a strategic perspective, I was relatively junior at the time, but I think strategically speaking, I probably would have pitched a much more holistic approach to where different practices inside of the marketing department ultimately work together to achieve the same goal. And we are incentivized to share learnings and insight across the board, especially with other departments, not even yeah. just within marketing itself. That is my approach. I think it's a, a, a perfect world scenario for sure. If we were to think about demand gen as a function, if there's you know one person responsible for it, how does that person still succeed, but then also share the weight? I think it's more of a top-down thing, unless of course that, you know, that demand gen person is empowered. Yeah, I love what you said about the other teams because I think so often like it's I got caught up too much in the tactics of demand gen and like we're trying to generate leads. We're actually I think the modern demand gen team is like should just own revenue. And if you just think about revenue, then to your point, you're like, oh, it's not about converting a small percentage more people on the website or just think about marketing channels. I need to go, is there an upsell opportunity within the product? Or, you know, if we built this new feature, is there demand for that? Or could we work with our expansion team? You know, like, or is there pricing and packaging? Like, I think the future of demand gen is more like closer to thinking about holistically revenue, yes. not just marketing channel. Yeah, sure. We could go spend another 50 grand and generate another, you know, however many leads this month, but that's not what we're after. Holistic is the perfect word here. I think the mindset shift here that, I am seeing and would like to see more, not just within marketing, but across the board, across the entire business where product starts owning, not necessarily like literally owning a revenue goal, but but they very clearly impact it. Same thing for customer success, same thing for sales. Uh, I think sales and marketing are traditionally seen as the revenue generators in the organization. But the truth is that, especially in SaaS, uh, if you do not have a product that people do not want, there's like, like what do you do? There's no forcing that down people's throats. Uh, right. People try, companies try, but then they end up <laughs> This is my biggest problem. It's like, <laughs> oh, hey, you're frustrated that more people aren't demo, aren't, aren't like, oh, get a demo is our money. Like, that's what we're trying to drive. Like, is it really marketing's fault or is it that people don't want a demo of what we're offering? Like, how often do we think about that? <laughs> it It is, uh, and, and this, you know, we, we talked a little bit about psychology already, but this is the hardest thing I think that our human minds have to contend with, which is questioning even our big bets on what product is and what it should be, especially in a given market or a given context. And I think a lot of CEOs, especially founders, especially uh, if they're first time, they get into a place to where they kind of feel like they're in a double bind and they can't 
shift their like shift what they've already built or shift their MVP or adjust. And the truth is that you absolutely can. You're not yeah. too bought in. You can always adjust and change. Well, and like and okay, and, and your your world is is SaaS, like mine too, right? And I think so often we you're just married to this like product strategy and product roadmap. You know, all the companies they are thinking about. Every company has kind of one one of two motions, and a lot of them have both, which is enterprise and freemium. And so there's some like <laughs> free funnel, right? But what we don't think about enough is like, what's the packaging like? You know, if you just have some super terrible, lightweight, free version of your enterprise product, of course, that's not going to be a good lead gen channel. Versus, could product be the best marketing channel because it's this amazing free experience? Here, here's an example we're recording this on Zencaster. There was no like gated feature thing. I, I literally use for Zencaster, I used it full. I did five hours of podcast interviews, videos, high def videos for free for 30 days, and then I bought. But for some reason, a lot of SaaS companies, we haven't a- adopted that. And I'm just giving a shout out to all of us marketers out there. Like this is a reminder that your job is not to just think about marketing. Like if you own revenue, you have to holistically think about all of the pieces. And so don't beat yourself up so much about trying to squeeze out five more leads from you know Google ads. This is, can you think more holistically as, as Asia says? Okay, mm-hmm. let's talk about the first 100. This is where you focus with the companies that you work with. Obviously, there's only so much time, but like, can you share some of the the principles in your playbook for the first 100? Because I think that it's applicable whether you're trying to get your first 100 now, or even if you're in a bigger company and working on a separate project. There's a lot of people out there that are trying to jumpstart things. So, what's the playbook? Yeah, of course. Okay, the first hundred, uh, just for context, is absolutely relative to your market size. The first hundred is one of those milestones, especially if you're raising that um, many VCs might look at. But if you are in a total adjustable market, a TAM of more than a billion, you might actually be looking at like your first thousand or your first 5,000, just for context sake. But okay, we're going to start with actually the first 10, because I think that the first 10, especially if you're in that really, really early stage, you don't have any paying customers, but you've got an MVP. When we go back, so we're going to backtrack to our five levels of awareness, our five stages of awareness. So the very first stage is technically the unaware stage. What I recommend to early stage SaaS companies, so you're in, you're definitely within that first 10, you're within that first 100, you are going to totally ignore those unaware people. <laughs> and it is probably going to feel like, but why? Like, that's exactly who I want to sell to. But the reality is that in order to get someone to go from unaware to problem aware, it's actually a huge gap. And it's a huge chasm that honestly isn't really worth crossing right now. You're probably not going to have enough time and or enough money to get people to cross that chasm. The reason why is because you kind of have to convince them that they have a problem. And for some industries, that could take actual literal years. And then there are some industries where maybe that's a lot faster, but it, it just completely depends on your market. So the bet that I actually ask early stage task companies in this first 10 and, and also the first 100 is to really focus on people who already experience the pain. Now, the real question is, okay, well, I've got that Asia. Yes, let's focus on people who have the pain, but how do we find them? In the first 10, what I find most companies do is if they have not been building a list throughout this MVP process, which could take one to two years on average, then then they don't really have like a pool of people waiting to use this product. Which, by the way, if you can do that, highly recommend it if that's available to you. That was how I got hired at my last company, Drift, which was they were six months pre-product launch. Mm -hmm. And my job for the first six months was to just do content, brand. We had a podcast. We had a blog. And so when we were ready to launch, we had an email list of about 5,000 people who didn't really know what we were building, but we were creating content in the sales and marketing niche. And so we had putting out content in that niche. And then six months later, it was like, hey, you know us, the people that you know, like, and trust, and you're on our email list now. Well, we actually have something that you can try now introducing our product. And so like, just a huge plus one to like, if you're a founder listening to this or marketing, like if you can have the the vision long enough term to build that in, it's going to be way easier because the other solution is like, you're going to go knocking door to door on LinkedIn to get those first 10 meetings. Like build an audience first. If you can do that at any time, it's going to make life so much easier. Okay. I'm going to shut up and let you keep going. <laughs> I completely agree. And actually, I remember that 
So I was, uh, I was following um, DC very closely, David Cancel, very closely throughout that process. And I, I actually remember some of those very early pushes and campaigns on behalf of Drift. So yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Perfect example. Oh, one other thing, one other thing that you mentioned that's so important. You have to make hard decisions. Like people want it there. I want to get my first 100 customers, but I'm not willing to sacrifice any of the market. And it's like, no, you have to find. So I love that you're ignore. I love that you recommend people ignore that stage because like you can figure that out later to your point. But like same thing that we did at Drift, which is we knew where we wanted to go from a full market perspective. But the first niche that we launched with was product marketing. Not even all of marketing that we sold into. We sold into product marketing because we wanted to have something. So that was our wedge. And by the way, what's powerful about that is like, when you go through that wedge, you learn. You learn the process. You learn how to do things. Okay, hey, that worked or didn't work for product marketing. Now, if we want to expand to demand gen, we have some things that we know that we can take from that playbook. So I thought that's fantastic advice. Yes, yes. Focus is actually freedom. And I think a lot of early stage teams feel like it is the total opposite. <laughs> but okay, so I, I completely agree. I, if you can build an audience, I would always recommend that. Most teams, I find, don't. And that's okay too. But the path is, I would say, it's a different kind of challenging. And it is also, it's a different kind of mindset that you have to take if you're starting from scratch. So if you've got your MVP and you're kind of like, okay, I don't really have an audience, but we want to start building one now, then really it becomes about, to put it frankly, pounding the pavement to get those very first 10 as qualified as possible people who experience the pain, are actively looking for a solution, and really take your solution seriously. There are some companies uh, that will actually pre-sell into this where they say, hey, we're going to give you the first two to three months free, but after that, let's sign like an annual deal. Um, we'll give you like a super discounted rate. But it, it, as, it's just to really get them to pay. It could be literally $5. It's to pay something. I mean, obviously you want it to match obviously like what the value is of the product, but the goal here is to get as close to a paying customer as you possibly can. The longer I find that you go without testing pricing or testing payment, the longer that you put off really truly understanding your product market fit. Yeah, I think that's great advice, especially if you have like a little bit of an audience online, you can easily get friends and family to, to sign up for your thing. I think the other thing is like for people that are listening that might have more of like an enterprise this is why it matters so much that the product is good and works because if you're doing this more in the enterprise, there is no free. And so I'm doing outbound outreach, whether that's even content or just cold outreach on LinkedIn to try to get a demo, right? And so think about that jump. And so I got to reach out to you. And so that's where you really have to be honed in. That's why it's so powerful to be to focus on a niche here first because the product has to work. You're not going to be able to do cold outbound to like a fake demo or PDF. It's like, if you're going to do cold outbound, it's got to be like, if I'm Zencaster, it's like, look, I know you're a marketing leader. I know you're into podcasting. We have this ridiculous new podcasting platform. It's completely free. Uh, you can do X, Y, and Z and you can host it all. Can we give you a demo? That's the process. And so like, this is why it's more just about more than marketing channels because you got to be working that with the product team with the engineering team, like you have to know, you have to feel good about like, oh, I'm going, and I remember that early days of Drift, like I'm going out doing one-on-one -on -one outreach, but I feel damn good about what I'm trying to get you to demo because I know that if I can get you on a demo, I know, I know it's legit. That's the position you want to be in as a marketer. Absolutely. And from a context perspective too, going after enterprise, especially like if you build your business knowing you're going to go after enterprise and you're the very first marketer, or you're the head of marketing, knowing that the vision is to go after enterprise, that also has a very different, uh, very similar process, but the expectations level is much higher, I find, because enterprise-ready software, enterprise readiness, I'm putting that in finger quotes for those listening, that is its own ball game of what kind of expectation that needs to be set from a product perspective. And it does give you some perks, I find. So I, I find sales teams are usually able to sell into annual deals much easier and faster than you know maybe teams that aren't necessarily focusing on enterprise. But at the same exact time, you've got to have the product to back it up. And the MVP process that you go through is usually, I, I find, a lot more intense <laughs> from my perspective. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Okay, so wherever we are, I interrupted you somewhere along that lines, but no, we're going okay. down the playbook. We skipped over, so you're skipping unaware, and then what? Like what? Where I see a lot of people get stuck is like the 
you got all these things in the toolkit as a marketer. You got a blog, you got a website, you got mm-hmm. outreach, you got sales, you got ads. Like, let's say you've narrowed down your story. You feel good about the pitch. You feel good about the message. You feel good about the target. Then what? How do you figure out which time to spend on on what channels? Yeah. Okay. So let's say we've gotten the very first ten because we've we've shaken our network tree. We've we've asked for introductions, referrals, etc. After that, getting to the very first one hundred. This is where it's going to be a cross between what is based off of what you learn from your very first paying customers and or users, what is the actual market opportunity that you want to go after first? So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, what I find happens, it's really, really common, but a lot of times companies will start going to market. They get their very first 10. They have this vision in their heads around like, we're going to go after this part of the market. But then they learn very quickly that actually there's a much better opportunity that's better suited for where we're at today. We're going to go after those first. Um, ideally, that's and that's a very normal part of the process. In fact, I would expect it to happen. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes some companies just nail it like off the bat, but I find it's much more rare. So after that, it's going to be, like I said, the very first piece of this is what's the actual market opportunity that you actually are best suited for right now? And then the second part of that is you're going to have to make a few decisions around two things. The first cross is, are you going to go inbound or outbound? And then the second cross is, are you going to go paid or organic? And that is a, imagine it's a, it's a cube. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a 3d entity here that we're kind of like figuring out, like where are we putting ourselves? Um, but, You're just thinking in 3D on the fly here, by the way. I love it. <laughs> no big deal. It actually might be. I could be wrong. It actually might be 2D. Uh, okay. So from here, honestly, the answer isn't necessarily like, well, what do we feel like? It's going to come down to, well, what market are you targeting? Because going after going after Fortune 500 is going to look so different than going after... Um, uh, millennial women in the United States, right? C- uh, c- completely different market sizes yeah. uh, and implications. This is great. It's like these are like sets of guardrails, basically. That like you can't get to the tactics until you've peeled back those layers, because you know you and I just get on a whiteboard and just like brainstorm marketing activities. But that doesn't mean anything. Where we're like, no, no, how are we going to reach Fortune five hundred CFOs? That's the like field that we're playing on. Okay, so that's one. Now we're reducing the decisions. Okay, so how do we market to those people? Then like you can start to go and circle the tactics. I got you. I, I like thinking of it. This is a great way to peel it back from stages of awareness to inbound versus outbound to like starting with the the buyer. It's like marketing is about knowing where you got to go to where people are hanging out online and in person and try to get in front of them. I think that that's a good path to do it. And to add on to that, because now we're going to combine frameworks here to add on to that enterprise uh, CFOs who are also problem aware. And how do you identify those people? Mm. There's actually, there's so many different ways that we can create a customer segment. Many people will start with the demographics. They'll start with like, oh, you know, they're middle-aged white guys in the Silicon Valley. But then there's also (laughs) other things too. You just described every CFO (laughs) ever. (laughs) I tried. That'd be the biggest list. Yeah. But then there's also technographics, there's firmographics, there's uh, psychographics even. There, like, there's so many other ways to slice and dice a customer segment. And I, I think the really fun part is brainstorming those based off of our existing data set. And then also doing the research to actually figure out, okay, like where do these people hang out? beyond the more predictable channels. So we already kind of have a general sense for, okay, like if we do outbound, that's probably going to be some form of sales outbound. Uh, it could be cold. It could also potentially be warm, but nine times out of 10, it's going to be through your typical channels, email, phone, could even be direct mail technically these days. But then on the organic side and also the paid acquisition side, there's, yes, like there's Facebook, there's Google ads. Those I think are pretty uh, well-known places. And certainly they need to be explored for the particular customer segment we're targeting. But then there's also like, well, do those guys go to associations? Do they go to conferences? Are there like Slack channels that they're parts of? Yeah. Do they talk shop on Instagram? Like who knows? And that's kind of the the vetting that needs to happen 
I love it. I'm so we haven't mentioned a single freaking channel, and I, I don't want to. This is so good. It's kind of like this constant like uh, gap analysis that you're doing. Like you're kind of checking, like okay, so who are they? Where do they hang out? And then like I think there, there, one layer that I've done in the past is also like, and then what's the competition doing, right? And so like if there's a huge competitor, like to your to your example right there, like oh they they go hang out at these trade shows, okay. Trade shows, maybe uh, like I'm trying to look at channels that people are that we can win at right now with our ingredients. And so it's like, yeah, maybe they're at trade shows, but do we have a hundred K right now to go spend on a booth? Probably not. So like, that's a good idea, but let's hold that. Okay. Oh, interesting. No one in, I bet CFOs uh, are in their car a lot and I bet they have iPhones and I bet they listen to podcasts. Huh? No one in our industry has a podcast huh, okay, should one of the things that we do to start targeting CFOs be launch a podcast? Like, I like to think of it like that also. You have to be aware of what else is happening in your in your space, in the market. And so I, I remember this specifically. Uh, there was a company, uh, Drift and Intercom were like, our, you know, arch rivals back in the day. And Intercom had a very, they had great content, great blog, great content. And so we made a strategic decision in marketing to not try to compete there in that niche with product managers because they had a really strong niche there. Let's go somewhere else. Like You have to stack the deck in your favor uh, in, in any way that you can. Absolutely. And part of defining what that acquisition strategy looks like is also deciding what you're not going to do, or at least what you're not going to do right now. And having an answer, like just having an answer for that, by the way, like, cause I've been like, Oh, hey, why are we not doing ads? And I'm like, uh, and the CEO is like, you have all this budget. Why are we not doing ads? I'm, I don't have an answer. But to be able to be smart on, it's okay to say no in marketing. It's hard, like marketers that are listening, we all get stuck doing it. But like, you got to be able to say, no, We. it's way easier to communicate. Here are the market. Every week, I'm going to tell you, here are the marketing channels that we're focused on this week. I love that you brought that up. Absolutely. Hey, real quick, I just want to plug the DGMG community. You can go and join it right from my website, davegerhardt.com. By the way, if you haven't been there, davegerhardt.com, you'll have all the links. That's how you can go join. But DGMG, the community, it's my members-only B2B marketing community. In the last year, it's grown to over 2,500 members. And it's incredible because it's like having a sounding board outside of your company, which is so valuable as a marketer. So inside of the group, people are getting feedback. They're getting recommendations on tools. They're getting campaign ideas there. Sometimes people even message me to post anonymous questions about salary and hiring and interviewing. And I'm in the group every single day, like sharing my own stuff too. There's 10 to 12 new posts every day. If you join, you can go all the way back as far as the group goes to see all of the content from the last year. And I don't want to oversell it, but I know that you'll see our from it instantly. It's $10 a month to join. You can cancel at any time. So there's really no risk. And you can kind of, you can always DM me and tell me if you thought it was a fraud. So it's $10 a month to join. There's 2,500 members in there. It's become an incredibly valuable part of my workflow as a marketer. And I know it will for you too. So you can go and sign up at davegerhart.com. There's a link you'll see over there to join the DGMG community. All right, let's get back to this episode. And I think too, you mentioned it's kind of like we're doing like a constant gap analysis. I complete, yes, that's a perfect way to explain it. I think the thing that we're trying to be careful of or what I recommend that that teams, early stage teams are very careful of is making the assumption that we, we have to do these channels because others are doing it or we have to do this because everyone else is doing it. That's not necessarily the case. It should actually be reversed where it's, what does your potential customer actually do? Like where do they hang out? And also who influences them? I think that's another really big thing too that we sometimes forget. I think we, especially as marketers, we kind of get obsessed with like where people are. And sometimes we're not nearly as obsessed with what actually impacts them or influences them. So you might be targeting those CFOs and enterprise companies, but what if they all listen to the Day of Gerhardt podcast? Like <laughs> who influences those people? Right. What impacts those people? That's also potential marketing opportunity as well. Yeah. Seth Godin calls them, I think it's from Purple Cow, he calls them the sneezers, which is like, who are the people in that industry that when they sneeze? <laughs> I actually use that. I use that reference. The last in-person talk I gave was like March 6, 2020. I used that analogy and it was like right as COVID was starting and it kind of got like a bunch of groans. And so I haven't, I haven't used it. But I, I think understanding who influences those people in the industry, that's where the gems are. And you can just learn, by the way. That's how you get smart in your industry. Like, Listen to that. Like when I joined Privy, 
this guy Kurt Elster had this has this podcast, unofficial Shopify podcast, and the way that I got up to speed on the e-commerce landscape and helped me get smarter as a marketer was I listened to that podcast. Like you can listen to the same things your customers are listening to. Absolutely, yes. Getting inside the minds and the hearts <laughs> of your audience, as as weird as that sounds. Uh, no, that's what that's the secret about. sauce. Where did that come from in you? Like, did you? Because like I, I, a lot of people don't become this way in marketing. Where did that come from in your like career mm. growth? A lot of failure, to be honest. Doing it wrong for for a long time, and and not um, knowing that things could be better, but not necessarily knowing or understanding what was missing. And it wasn't until. I translated over or I moved over into startup world where, I mean, every, you know, as marketers and founders, of course, we're going to make mistakes. There are, uh, there are things I am absolutely still learning. I think for me, though, my biggest thing was I, I needed, I knew I needed to stay curious and I knew I couldn't just take everything that I had learned for granted and that context is everything and what might work in some arenas won't necessarily work in others. And it wasn't until I started Demand Maven, which Demand Maven has been around now for about three years, three and a half years, um, when I started working with even more startups and SaaS companies at once, it became so clear that what works in one place probably isn't going to work in another. And there isn't just one playbook. There's really only mindset and approach and practice <laughs> and you refine and you hone your craft over time as you get more data points. Yeah. Starting a business, though, gave me a lot of data points. And I think that was a very big shift for me as well. But honestly, doing it wrong for a very long time until realizing, oh, my gosh, I'm actually missing these crucial pieces. And it's how I think about this as opposed to like literally tactically what I do. Well, and it's like this is like what the stuff you talked about today is like this is like the timeless playbook right and so like if you're ne- you're now you're now rooted in like the principles of marketing and so whether channels and tactics all change this really isn't and so it's like you have this playbook that's grounded in that now and you can build off of it i kind of think of it too as i think the stronger strategic muscle that you have when thinking about how to troubleshoot how to and how to best plan with the data set that you have now, and then also knowing what you don't know, those things also help so much, uh, especially if you're a marketer listening and you've been told by your boss, like, I-, I need you to be more strategic. Those are the kinds of things that I have heard personally. And realizing I needed to build and flex that muscle has also helped me in my career and even how I now consult so much. How did you get more strategic? Because I've heard that feedback too, mm-hmm. but it's it's tough to put it into action. Are there, were there things that you did? I turned to a few sources. The first are books. There's a few great books out there about strategy and thinking strategically. I love IDEO, for example, when it comes to thinking about their like strategic process and design thinking. There's a book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, I believe by Richard Pomelt. That's an amazing one. And there's another that Louis Grenier and I both recommend all the time, and I'm totally blanking on the name. So there's there's a few books that I would definitely recommend. But I think the other strategic thing or a thing that I would do to become more strategic would be to learn from other marketers who had to use those skills and had to make really hard decisions and understanding how did they arrive at those decisions that ended up becoming winners. And then also... How did they learn from their failures? Mm. Those are also their clues as to their strategic process. As marketers, we all have a strategic process. Uh, Some are much more, I don't want to say they're more robust than others, but I would say maybe some are a little bit more evolved than others because they have more experience or more data points or what have you. But I, I look to marketers that I really admire and I look to strategists that I really admire. How did they arrive at those decisions? And if you're if you have relationships like that, then I would definitely recommend tapping those and having those conversations and kind of reverse engineering. Well, how did you get how did you make this decision for Privy or how did you uh, how how did we make this decision for Moz? Like that usually indicates a strategic thinking pattern. That was 100% the thing for me, which is like it wasn't until I really talked regularly to other marketers who are further along than I am that's when I really started to see the strategic element of it. And by the way, for people that are listening, maybe you're, you're early in your career or for whatever reason, like you don't have a network. And now obviously like Asia or myself or whoever can get in touch with a lot of marketing leaders and, and talk to them that way. But 
I've been 23, 24 years old trying to cold DM people and get coffee meetings and whatever. And I think it's one of the reasons why I like to do this podcast. Because for me, before I had a network, I was listening to SaaS. I, you know, I think to your point, most important ingredient is stay curious element because I was hungry to learn this. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch every freaking Saster top CMO YouTube video. And I watched a Megan Eisenberg video and I'm watching a, a Saster thing. Then then I'm, I'm listening to the podcast. And now I think of it the same way. The reason I want to put this content out there is because you don't have to meet somebody in person to be able to, to learn from them. And so I think it's being able to like listen to a conversation like this take an ingredient. How do you take something that Asia said today and go and put it in play? Like that's where you really learn. It's like, oh, I heard, you know, I heard this woman talk about stages of awareness. Okay. How about I heard her talk about it and oh my gosh, next week I'm going to, I'm going to try to do this. Like that was when I grew the most, which is like, I heard somebody and it takes courage, but like, I'm going to go try this now. And so like, I think this, I want this to be your push to go and try that. Like if you heard something today, Go and take it and go and put it in play. You're at a startup. Like you have all, nothing to lose. Your boss is not going to be like, wow, I wish she didn't show so much initiative. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. So, so <laughs> I love that. Okay. I have a hundred other things that I want to ask you, but time is sensitive. And I wanted to ask you this completely separate thought, but it's something that I thought about. Okay. Yeah. I think you have an awesome business for a marketer, which is like, I think we live in a world now where. I'm not pushing anybody away from a SaaS company. I don't want anybody to get upset about this, but I think like if you have your own system, your own experience, your own little mini brand, like I just think what you've done is badass and I I think there's a whole career for people in marketing who hey, if marketing's your thing, you want to work with 3 4 5 different companies, like not only can you make a whole lot more money that way, but you get to grow your career, have your own business and so like I think there's a cool one of the fallouts of remote work is I'm seeing a lot more marketers thinking about starting up their own practice. And so maybe we could just riff on that, just hear about how that has been so far for you. Absolutely. Running a business and also simultaneously thinking about how I build not only my personal brand, but the business's brand as well, has been an absolute life changer, to be honest. Is it fun to be doing marketing for your own business as a, like you're driving leads for, for your own business. Like you must feel that in a different way. Yes. I did not think of myself previous to Demand Maven as a creator, but I now know that that is deep inside of me. <laughs> and if I am not creating things on behalf of Demand Maven, if I'm not, you know, doing these kinds of talks, if I'm not creating content or teaching people something or building something with someone, then there's just like, there's something missing for me. There's a gap. And that was not nearly as clear before Demand Maven, but it's definitely clear now. And then also the business expertise, especially if you decide to take that side hustle and turn it into something full-time, going from CMO to CEO, it has been such an incredible transformation and something I'm still learning. I could not at all claim to be you know, in a, you know the most perfect, amazing CEO or really CMO for that matter. But that process and that mindset shift has also been absolutely incredible. What's the best part about being CEO and the worst part about being CEO? <laughs> I'll start with the worst part. Uh, the worst part is not really knowing, especially if you're a first-time CEO, not really knowing what actions you're taking that might have negative ramifications later. Uh, it, it's kind of like, the, like, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And you can read a bunch of books and talk to a bunch of other CEOs and you know, listen to podcasts. But at the end of the day... I think I think the worst part about it is just knowing that you're going to make mistakes and doing your absolute best to just be okay with it. Like knowing you're going to make it, giving yourself grace and compassion to do that and to learn from it uh, and then hopefully never do it again. <laughs> that to me is the worst part because I, I would just hate to think that anything that Demand Maven did or that I did negatively impacted anybody. Like that's like minimizing negative impact is like the thing that I want to accomplish in life. <laughs> The best part about it, it's actually directly connected to the worst part, but the best part about it is building a team and seeing not just clients, but your teammates have the aha moment when they see what that strategic gap is for a client or seeing, oh my gosh, like after interviewing customers, this is what they need to go and do. Like it, it just, that to me is just uh, chef's kiss, amazing. I love seeing that that light bulb moment in my team and also in my clients. And also um, investing in my team is something I really love to do. I absolutely love 
teaching and coaching and mentoring. It's something I do in my client work. I love doing it also on the Demand Maven side as well. How big is the team? We actually don't have any full-time yeah. employees. I'm actually the only full-time in person, but we work with I was going to say, of, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. We work with a lot of contractors though. And there are some like core contractors that work on many different projects at once. Uh, and there's a few who, you know, who will come in for a season and then we might not see them again, like for another season or, you know, what have you. So they're kind of like in and out, but they're also still, uh, they rave about working with us, which makes me feel really good. Like we're, we're a pretty awesome person to work with or company to work with. But yeah, it's incredibly magical and sometimes daunting. <laughs> uh, like I'm responsible for all these people in a way, uh, but at the same exact time, very rewarding. And that wasn't something I was expecting. Yeah. So obviously you're in a unique position as a marketer to be like, okay, I am, I am creator now. And that should give you an advantage versus if you came out of some other discipline. Okay. This was great. We got to wrap up. Oh, question that I ask everybody before we go. Mm -hmm. Now that you've hung out for a little bit, who is one other marketing person, marketing leader that you would recommend that I have on? Have you already had Gia Laudi or Claire Sullentrop? No, neither. Really? Okay. I would definitely recommend them. Third person I would also recommend, I'm going to give you three. I know you asked for one. Uh, Allie Blum as well. She, I believe you might already be familiar with Claire and Gia, but Allie Blum is like jobs to be done, research, uh, explorative thinker extraordinaire. She is absolutely amazing. Would highly recommend her. Happy to introduce you to... Yeah, I'm going to hit you up for intros for sure. You, yeah. Some people come on here and they're like, they can't think of one. You over-delivered <laughs> with three. <laughs> Asia, okay, thanks for doing this. I appreciate you coming on uh, to drop some five stages of awareness, knowledge, startup marketing knowledge. Thanks for doing it. Quick plug for you on where people can find you before we we cut out. Okay, yes. Yeah, so the website is demandmaven.io. You can definitely catch me there in addition to other socials. Also find me on Twitter. That's what I'm I'm really on Twitter quite a Get lot. Get on Twitter. Yes. I absolutely love chatting with people on Twitter. So please hit me up, slide into my DMs, all the thing at Asia Arangio. Yeah, that's where to find me. All right. Asia, you're awesome. Thanks for doing this. I hope we can connect more in the future. This was a great episode. Likewise. Thank you guys so much for having me. All right. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the DGMG podcast. If you learned anything new from this episode or got one valuable piece of marketing knowledge, it'd make my day to leave a review. I like to look at them. I like to see what people are thinking and hear about. Or if you didn't like it, leave me some feedback. Otherwise, I will talk to you on the next episode. See ya.